Something New is supported by listeners like you. Visit joelbnew.com and help this podcast continue to grow, thrive, and be a part of the creative conversation. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 7 of Something New, a musical theater podcast. This is Joel B. New. How's everybody doing? I am so excited to bring another episode to you in this this our fifth season. Uh, my guest today is the co-founding artistic director of Heartbeat Opera here in New York, Louisa Proske, and she is awesome, as you are about to hear. But before we get to my interview with Louisa, I just wanted to remind you of the something new Q&A coffee mug sweepstakes, which is just what it sounds like. Between now and Friday, June 9th, you can send me a question via any of the social media pathways, and your name will be entered into a drawing. And not only will I probably answer your question on the air, you may win a something new coffee mug, which is an exclusive. And that, again, is through June 9th, so make sure you're tweeting and Instagramming and booking the face, asking me anything you want about the podcast, about um, projects I'm working on, about any of my guests. I'll try to find out whatever you guys want to know. Because knowledge is power. Also here on episode 507, the new corner segment is back, I am pleased to announce. And today's mini guest over a new corner is Billy Bustamante from season one, who can currently be seen in the just recently Tony-nominated revival of Miss Saigon playing at the Broadway Theater right now. I also think it's a pretty cool coincidence that Louisa's opera company, Heartbeat Opera, is about to open a production of Madama Butterfly, and Billy Bustamante is in another adaptation of Madama Butterfly, Miss Saigon, on Broadway. So isn't that kind of neat? I don't know, I like those those nerdy moments of, of coincidence. But anyway, I was thinking about what song I wanted to feature because there, there just wasn't time to write something new and rehearse it and get a space to record and find the singer. What can you do when you get a when you get a surprise guest and you really want to interview them and you still want to follow through with there being a song segment? Um, this is this is one option of what you do, and and that is find. A song from the from the archives that I'm particularly proud of, and I would like to re-air for you. And, uh, and technically, you have not heard this performance on the podcast, um, but a couple of years ago, my friend Joshua Hink, who I've also interviewed on this show, um, his web series New Work Wednesdays featured a new arrangement of my setting of. Travel, which is a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Now I am pleased to re-air that performance here for you, but for the first time on Something New. If you want to watch the performance, you can go to the New Work Wednesdays YouTube page, because it's it's right there, and um, it's lovely. It features Joshua Hink and Charlie Levy and Allison Mickelson. And so I hope you enjoy that at the end of this episode. If you're interested in acquiring the sheet music to that arrangement, uh, I believe it's on repertoire.com. If it's not, just add that request in when you um, 
when you're tweeting me questions for the podcast sweepstakes. Okay, that about does it. Thank you all, as always, for tuning in. And without further ado, here is episode 507 with Louisa Prosco. This is Joel B. New, and you're listening to Something New, my chance to talk with some of the savviest theater professionals in the industry, to hear their stories, and get to the heart of what makes them the working, multifaceted artists they have come to be. And today, I am so pleased to be sitting here with Louisa Proske. No, Proske. <laughs> Valiant attempt. <laughs> well, Proske, if you want Proske. to be really Louisa Prussian Proske. about it. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Thanks for being on my show today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. You just came from like a six-hour rehearsal. Is that yeah, right? I have the like tired, happy glow. Of, you know, <laughs> a long battle fought and many ahead. You are a director of opera, classical theater, and new work. Is that right? That's right. And also an artistic director, co-artistic director of, of the opera company. Uh, heartbeat opera that I'm directing for at the moment, and then I'm also actually an acting teacher. That's yeah, I found that um, at the Maggie Flanagan studio. That's right. Yeah, that's terrific. What was your way in? Did you always want to direct? Or... Uh, no, I wanted to be uh, first an opera singer, then mm-hmm. a then an actor. I was a child uh, performer uh, okay. at the Komische Oper in Berlin. It's one of the great opera houses, uh, I think, in Germany. Um, Which is where you're from which is where I'm from. I grew up in Berlin, um, and I was part of the children's choir. So from the age of eight, I was on stage every week uh, in different, you know, all the operas that contain children's choirs, basically, La Boheme, Pagliacci, uh, Werther, and so on and so forth. So. And at what point did you say, you know what, I'm going to step aside and run the show instead? It was late, you know, I think it was not an untypical journey in that I, for a long time as a child performer, felt like the truly worthy thing in theater was to perform, to be on stage yourself and be seen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I didn't really grasp the excitement of all of the other jobs that are available in theater. And so it was only in my teens, really my late teens, when I actually was really weeks away from uh, auditioning for acting school that I suddenly had this very visceral and strange change of heart where I suddenly felt like, no, actually, that's not me. I'm not, I don't want to be up on stage performing in front of other people. And then it took me a couple of years to really realize that my, for me, my true place was on the other side. Um, and I think that, you know, the thing that stayed with me is that I, I, I had and have this incredible love of performers. I, I love what they do. I have so much respect, so much tenderness for, you know, the very vulnerable and, and brave and uh, crazy work that they do. And so work, working very closely with actors is, and singers, singer-actors is one of the great pleasures for me of the work. You said, like, going into your late teens, you just, you decided to change paths. I find that, like, actually relatively early. Ah, yes, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it felt late because I'd been on stage so since, long. you know, age seven, yeah. so so it felt like, I, it was a big crisis, actually, for me. I mean, I really felt like that's that was my path, that's what I wanted to do, and so it was frightening at the time it's to realize it's that. not that. I mean, for, for a while, it felt like uh, theater was dead for me, do you know? And I mm. love theater so much, but I felt like not being a performer, like that that's it. There's no other role for me. So right. 
Yeah, that's why I felt momentous at the time. Yeah. I get that. I, I started as a performer as well, and I yeah. actually got my, uh, I went to undergrad for it, mm-hmm. and it was during undergrad that I realized that I could write and that I wanted to write, and it actually became a louder calling. And that was very scary. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I talk to, now I teach at an acting school and I talk to my students about that a lot and encourage them to really, you know, just because you go to school as an actor doesn't mean you have to be an actor your whole life. Yeah. You know, it's not, It's it can be very exciting to, to feel like actually suddenly your path is changing into a different direction. And, and that, is, that is an important lesson that I'm trying to impart to my dear listeners <laughs> every two weeks. Um, who are your favorite directors out there? Like who, and anyone that I would recognize? Oh, uh, you know, so you mentioned I'm, I work in equally in opera and in, uh, theater. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, opera, I would say my sort of lineage is, uh, there's this famous, um, German opera director called Walter Felsenstein, who you could say almost founded the opera where I was working as a kid. Um, So his whole thinking about opera as something that's not just, you know, music and singers parking themselves somewhere on stage and then singing out for the duration of their aria, park and bark, so to speak, but it's actually psychology and deep storytelling and deep kind of insight about the human spirit inside of the music that has to be treated as a score for the actor as in the actor inside of the singer as well as the score for the musician that thinking has been huge for me uh in my own approach to opera and then more recently so right out of high school I assistant directed Willy Decker who's um I think one of the great contemporary opera directors um who made the Traviata that's at the Met uh, at the moment with the big clock um so those two I would name. And then uh, for theater, I mean, you know, if we're talking like giants, I would say Peter Brook, um, mm-hmm. Ariane Mushkin, the, you know, the theater group that she founded in, in Paris. Can you t- just tell me in a nutshell, what is Heartbeat Opera? Yeah, Heartbeat Opera is a director-led but community-driven indie opera company in New York. We're in our third season. Um, and we make radical uh, adaptations of mostly classic, very famous pieces, though sometimes we attack pieces that are very little known. Um, And by radical adaptations, I mean that we both um, often very uh, radically edit down the pieces to shorter lengths. Uh, We also uh, tell the story in a new way. We bring new visions to these uh, uh, famous operas and we re-orchestrate uh, them but the reorchestrations are not reductions so much as really radical reimaginings of what the score could sound like so to give you an example the Lucia di Lamamor that I directed last year um, told the story of the opera through the consciousness of a, an unnamed young woman who was um, tied up in a mental hospital, restrained to a, to a bed, uh, and was hearing the opera on a radio station, and then slowly imagining the story in her own mad, uh, deranged brain. And so her imagination, of course, changed the way the music sounded. And so suddenly in our orchestration, you had things like um, vibraphone, electric guitar, toy piano, 
you know, all these things that weren't even around when Donizetti yeah. was writing the music. Um, so uh, one of our two co-music directors, Daniel Schlossberg, um, brings this amazing uh, sensibility and really genius to the company in being able to make these very, very creative um, rearrangements of the scores. And that's very central to what we do. It's unlike anything that I've ever seen or heard in an opera, um, which is so satisfying and refreshing. Yeah, so when I say it's a community, you know, uh, so Ethan, my founding co-artistic director, and I uh, went to Yale School of Drama together, and we bring from there a a big and deep community of, um, you know, especially designers, uh, but also theater managers, stage managers, all the others on the creative team but um the the collaboration with the designers especially has been really central in creating sort of a whole new world for each production where does the name come from heartbeat opera it's um really central to us that there's something uh extremely visceral and ancient about opera do you know when you're in the womb the first thing that you really perceive before sight or smell is sound you you hear the world before you see it or or touch it even um and so i think you know and they talk a lot about it when you listen to particular kind of music or classical music a lot when when you're still in the womb it it really shapes you actually as a as an unborn child still um so you know i think there's something about the operatic voice, which of course is the idea that, you know, one single human can sing in an opera house and you can be, uh, you know, 50 feet away and still perceive the voice, um, you know, in all its radiance and beauty. And it's not because they're miked, (laughs) it's because of technique, it's because they've developed their voice in, in a particular way where the sound waves travel very far. There's something about that connection in the opera that's utterly magical and and visceral to us like it's it's sound waves that hit your own body and your own skin and go into your bones and into your nervous system and so uh and it gets your heart heart rate going you know when you hear a great aria something happens to your body you know it's beyond the intellect it's beyond the the mind it's it's uh, physical and visceral and so that idea was always really central to us. And I'll tell you, actually, you know, because Ethan and I um, took a class at uh, Yale School of Drama, which is called the Opera Practicum, and they would put the young singers of Yale Opera and then the theater directors of the drama program together for six weeks and would just let us play. And basically the directors would take on scenes from great operas and would you know bring ideas and and rehearse with the singers and this would happen in small rooms like classrooms and the the experience of these big beautiful you know penetrating voices in small spaces and seeing performers sort of live through a great aria but like two feet away uh, is amazing and we always after the class said it's such a pity that people don't have this kind of experience in yeah. performance because usually in opera you're just so far away, yeah. you know. So, so one of the impulses of the company actually was let's bring that experience to people. Let's see mm. what happens if you have the performers only be two feet away, if the performers mm. even touch the audience members or get very, very close to them. 
do you know? So um, it's gotta be intense. Again, it gets your heart rate going, right? So there's uh-huh. something about the heartbeat. Then, of course, you know, the heartbeat is like the inner metronome of the opera. So there's something musical inside of us that we already feel before we even, you know, learn anything about music theory. Yeah. So that's also in there. There's many, many famous opera operatic arias about uh, the heart. And the heartbeat, the heartbeat, of course, has been put into music many times by by composers. Um, but then also, finally, I would say that it's, you know, the humanity and the human stories that are inside of these great operas is what, what's at the center of the company more than anything else. Yeah. So that's why we named it Heartbeat Opera. Aside from that class where you're like, I want to bring this to the masses... Were there any needs out there that weren't being met for yourself and you're like, I'm going to create this opportunity? Because I just know so many art- artists, including myself, I'm like, well, then I'm going to make the opportunity. There was definitely something about the process of a lot of opera making that we saw around us that frustrated us. And that's, you know, got to do with the fact that opera can be quite hierarchical and it can be quite compartmentalized um, in that... You know, there's not a lot of communication between different departments. And then in opera, of course, you have the thing where sometimes the star is flown in last minute and gets shown the set in five minutes, and then they're on stage an hour later, you know, and they've barely, if at all, talked to the director about the concept and the ideas behind the production. And so it's all a a bit um, routine, you know. And and we thought, well, if we're going to found a company... You know, we're never going to be the Met. We're never going to have that kind of money or those kinds of resources or that kind of space. But what we will have is the opportunity to be extremely collaborative and extremely uh, conscious of our community. Um, and being theater people, we sort of ha- we're at the strange crossroads of you know we know a lot of great designers and choreographers, movement directors, you know. But then we also have this strong bond to uh, musicians and opera singers so so part of it was kind of bringing those worlds together so our leadership team which is the two co-artistic directors Ethan and myself and then the two co-music directors Daniel Schlossberg and Jacob Ashworth and our producing director Jennifer Newman uh, we go on a retreat in the summer um, and we have we we put all the pieces on the table that we are interested in working on and then together we choose the ones that we feel like are most fruitful and right for the company right now. And then a process begins, which is really amazing. You know, we, we start talking to the designers. Um, uh, the, the sort of production concept and idea is developed together with the designers, the movement directors, and the arranger um, so that you know, it's all of one piece. Like everybody is talking to each other, right? And it's sort of cross-fertilizing, so to speak. And, you know, then in rehearsal, I mean, this is very unique in opera. Dan is the music director and the arranger is in the room from day one. So when we find an idea in staging that we feel like could extend into the way that moment is orchestrated, Dan is right there to do that. Like he'll be changing and adjusting the orchestra score as we're staging, do you know? Yeah. So it's it's very um, interwoven, and I think, it, you know, it's cooked on a very slow fire. These productions, these spring productions, take almost a year to make. 
Um, and that's very rare in today's yeah. theater world <laughs> and opera world. It's yeah. a luxury that we sort of carve out for ourselves and we find it um, really important because sometimes it's fun and amazing and very fueling to make things fast, but you also have to have the opportunity to make things slowly and fail and change your mind about things and try different versions and sort of arrive at something uh, via the long road. Why don't you tell us what the Spring Festival is, basically? Yeah, so it's the culmination of the heartbeat season. Um, in the fall, we do a couple of events, which we call our gateway drugs. So these are um, uh, events where we try to essentially expand our the opera audience and, and, and bring in people who don't traditionally think of themselves as opera goers. So our... Uh, signature event is the um, Halloween drag extravaganza where we mix opera with drag and uh, kind of a performance art costume party event. Uh, It's really fun and it's gotten wilder every year. Um, This year it was at National Sawdust. And then this last fall we also were the first ever opera company to perform on the High Line. Um, which was another step in sort of bringing opera to New Yorkers. Um, All of this, though, leads up to the Spring Festival, which is two full productions, uh, one directed by myself, one directed by Ethan, and each is music directed by one of our uh, co-music directors. Um, And so they're fully designed, fully fully conceived, you know, um, and and they run in repertory. Um, And this year it is um, Madama Butterfly, but in a new version which we call just butterfly Um, and that's directed by Ethan and he's really taking on some of the uh, problematic histories around this piece do you know and uh, the racism and the misogyny and the the quite problematic narratives that are that are in this piece Um, and so it's going to be a really uh, a new version of the opera Um, and then I'm directing Carmen also in a 90-minute version and and uh, reduced to just the four central characters of the piece. Um, and both of those productions are running in repertory uh, May 20th through 28th at Baruch Performing Arts Center. And then to round it off, we have one night of, we call it Collaboré, uh, and it's basically a community night where we invite um, artists that are close to us or sometimes artists that that have worked with us before um, to show pieces in progress or, um, you know, whatever they're working on. So it's kind of a very joyful uh, mix of things. This year we have a composer, Marissa Mickelson, uh, with a new piece she's working on. And then our heartbeat regular, uh, Kristen Gornstein, is actually improvising um, to audience suggestions that she'll be collecting. So it's an opera singer improviser. Who and what inspire you when you approach work that was like originally produced in the 19th century? I always ask myself, you know, what does this story mean now? Why do we need to do it now? And to not take it for granted, well, it's a great opera, we have to do it. You know, we, we choose the stories that we feel like in some ways hit something personal or something or or get under our skin in some ways and then we try to show what that is to the audience um so you know we're i mean don't get me wrong you know we love the met and there's nothing wrong with the met but we think that there's space for a different relationship to opera where you know sometimes it's about updating the stories but not always but it's definitely about stripping away the sort of 
decorative stuff that you often see all the, the the very elaborate sets and the very elaborate often a little bit conventional or old-fashioned costumes that that you see in opera and uh to to connect with the presence the present and the and the presence of the performers um so i mean what inspires me you know it, it's so different for every piece you sort of find a new door to enter it with do you know why don't you talk to me about um Carmen? Carmen? Yeah, I mean, Carmen is interesting, you know, because I had a whole production planned in my head, which uh, was going to be kind of neo-noir, like probably New York City. And then and then the elections happened, and there was so much conversation around, you know, how should artists respond, and should they respond very quickly and very topically, or... Do you, as an artist, have the responsibility to actually not be like the news or like political satire that's about like quick, you know, quick turnaround, quick response, and you have to take a, even a step back and sort of um, find a deeper response to what is happening in America right now? And so that was all on my mind when I was thinking about the piece, and then, you know, something that really shook me up in the election. I mean, one of many, many things was this um, real diabolical um, obsession with the wall and with the national borders and, and, you know, shutting people out and building this physical, big, looming barrier between us and others uh, and what that means and why people got so um, inflamed by that. And so that somehow then entered the thinking about Carmen and was like, oh, in some ways it is a story. It's a story about two countries. It's a story about two people who are from vastly different cultures. And, you know, there is a physical barrier between them, but then there are also these invisible borders between them. And so we, we decided to actually put a big border fence on stage and see how the story plays out around that and uh and then to see that actually you know like overcoming the 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 physical border is only one step in their story and there there are other deeper barriers that they have to overcome and maybe can't and so somehow then that became like an image that we got very uh excited about and that sort of unlocked the story in a new way for us I am talking to Billy Bustamante, who is in the recently Tony-nominated revival of Miss Saigon. Billy Bustamante, how the heck are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on on your podcast again. Oh my gosh! Any chance I get, like it's it's like who 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 can I talk to? I want to talk to Billy, and if it works out, it's great. <laughs> Score. <laughs> Score. Oh my gosh! So you're in the revival. It just got nominated for best best revival. Um, there were only only three nominees this year. Correct. Yeah. So that was that, that was exciting. That was that it is. Um, so what is what has the energy been like at um, at the shows and backstage um, since the nominees came out on Tuesday? You know, it's been pretty great. Um, it's been a combination, like a nice balance of excitement over um, the nominations, and Eva, our leading lady, got nominated, which is amazing. I know. Um, 
but it's um the, I think my favorite part about it is it hasn't really affected too much like the normal wonderful energy of the show I feel like we're all happy to come to work no matter what we all like doing the show no matter what so um I feel like that's actually remained steady which I love <laughs> I feel like you know like we we all kind of are as proud of the show as we could be and um any you know nomination or no nomination we're all very proud of the show and want the show to be seen and recognized I have an ensemble track in the show that has a couple of uh, nice little features within that mm-hmm. and then um, I cover the engineer you do that pretty on the regular right yeah kind of it's, it's been pretty great I, I've been getting to do it uh, around once a week now um there's no like official schedule but um it's been yeah. nice to get so many cracks at it and to keep learning from it what's it like to you know <laughs> not be not be doing it eight times a week but then jumping in and then having to make choices and having to remember right. it and like <laughs> I have no idea how you do what you do it's really, yeah. really I'm still trying to figure that out myself as far as not doing it eight times a week I'm actually thankful for that because I look at John Don who plays the role regularly and he is such a genius and such a beast and uh, such a gladiator. And I really don't know how he does the role eight times a week or seven times a week. He has been doing it. Um, he was in the original London production over 25 years ago as an ensemble member. That's and he's right. kind of worked his way up through the ranks. It's, he's, he's, a, he's a legacy. <laughs> he's a national treasure. Wow. Saigon. The engineer is such a demanding role. It's such a crazy role. And I feel it really, your success is made or broken based on the people around you. And I think the ensemble is so... Uh, generous and all the other principals are so generous so like everyone kind of holds each other up no matter who's on which I think is great um, you are the co-artistic director of B-Side Productions is that I is that right? am how, that is um, how has that journey been going on it's been really really exciting this is my first year as co-artistic director and inhabiting that new position has been you know exciting and terrifying but great uh, Miss Saigon kept me pretty busy starting in January so uh Jasper, my co-artistic director, has been carrying a lot of slack, which has been great. But we're still moving forward in exciting ways. We do. Um, we have a monthly residency at Rockwood, where we um, help our artists oh, nice. feature some of their favorite artists. Um, so keep up with the website uh, b-sideproductions.org for um, info on that. And we're getting ready for our first main stage production, which will be announced soon. We're very excited about it. Well, I know you've got to go. I just wanted to catch you real quick and just um, have you join this little segment that I'm calling New Corner. I'm so glad that it provided this excuse just to say hi, and I think you're awesome, and I'm so proud oh. of you. Thanks, man. You too. Right. Seriously. Seriously. Break legs today, and um, I'll I'll see you at the Tony. <laughs> oh my gosh, sounds good to me. That's amazing. That's I In researching for this interview, I learned a new word. Um, Regie theater. Is that regie? Yeah, regie theater. Regie theater. They say here. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, Regie Theater or Regie Theater, the Americans would say. <laughs> it's a German term, and it basically points to a, a totally different um, production structure in Germany where really the director is seen as the author of the production. Um, you know, and in Germany, the, the th- history of theater in the last six, 60, 70 years has gone very, very differently from, from America. In theater, it's a little easier to understand because playwrights um, 
ultimately are the authors of a production of a new play at least right mm -hmm. and in Germany in particular but then in in most of Europe um, it's really the directors who are seen as the authors uh, of the production where often the point of a production will be actually to like radically deconstruct and even dismantle and make fun of a play um, and so in some ways it's you know, and that that goes to the point of directors like inserting other texts and, you know, totally um, divergent images into productions. And uh, so, so ultimately, then you know, people say, well, in your in Europe, what you see mostly is regie theater, which means it's theater, uh, ultimately shaped and sculpted and led by directors. Um, and in America, I would say that there's more reverence for either the living playwright if it's if it's a new play or you know the kind of what is seen as the original intention of the playwright or the composer librettist in some ways i left the culture of like very very aggressive authorship of directors because often you know that can lead to uh, productions that I feel like are not so interested in storytelling anymore, but they're interested in a more intellectual kind of meta meta theatrical discourse, which at the time and maybe still I'm not so interested in. Um, but I mean, I do see myself as a as an author, and especially with opera. You condense these operas into ninety minute adaptations. That's right. Why did you do that? A very prosaic reason is that we um, run these shows in rep and we offer double bill days where you can see both shows in one night. Oh, nice. So they have to be a length where there's right. no inter... I mean, yeah. you know, the show has no intermission and you take a break and you see the second opera. Um, but, you know, ultimately also, yeah, we make new versions of these stories and so we actually in a way choose the parts of the story that interest us most um, um you mentioned the drag shows um that you guys produce as well what for you is the connection between opera and drag drag is so operatic yes yes it is and opera can be very draggy <laughs> because you know for once there's so many stories of people uh you know uh costuming themselves as other people, people of a different gender. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the, the tradition of pants roles, right, where yeah. women play young boys um, and so on. So there's already a lot there in the tradition. And then, uh, I mean, honestly, p part of it was just Ethan was a drag performer in college and had actually founded uh, the tradition of the Yale School of Drag, which is a <laughs> yearly event where, you know, Yale, Yale School of Drama students do a big drag show and it's amazing so he started that and so we thought oh this would be so great to do a, an opera version of that it's a chance to go really big um which in a way opera is already about amplifying human emotion and and you know extreme states of being and you know and then sound coming out of that so in some ways we can just go completely over the top with that and it's really fun and it's very fun to sort of take arias out of the context of the story and just treat them as a number in a drag show and yeah. you can you can in a way you can go crazier you can do different things you know um so for example in the last drag show we had a papageno papagena duet from the magic flute but it was um papageno who was pregnant not Papagena. <laughs> we had uh, the Queen of the Night uh, 
capturing one of the audience members, and then the audience had to work together to pay their ransom um, in the form of fundraising, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so on. You know, so 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 it's a it's a playground. It's a way for us all to be really crazy and silly. Um, but it's also become a kind of breeding ground for ideas that then do make it into full productions. You already touched upon Clabberet. And was that part of your mission from the start? I think so far we've we've never done a con- we've never done a new opera and we do feel like New York is very well served for that. I mean there are plenty of other companies, you know, like Prototype sort of being the most famous the festival that really fosters new work. So um not to say that we might not do a new opera at some point in the future, but we've more stuck to um reimagining classical pieces, but um it's more about celebrating our community. Uh, we have such an amazing community of artists um, around us, and we can't always give everyone, you know, a place in the festival. But it's sort of a way to uh, sh- to share that with our audience. Two more questions. Of course. Um, beyond heartbeat, how does producing make you a stronger director, and vice versa? Yeah, producing and directing is it's a intense marriage of. <laughs> you know two very different connected but different sides of yourself um and producing while directing can be hard because yeah. you it's really two different hats and you sort of switch constantly producing is very satisfying for me because it's sort of a finite uh activity in that you have a certain task and then you fulfill it i mean either you do or you don't but if you do then it's sort of done and then you move on to the next task whereas directing for me it's torturously limitless i mean there's always something else you can say in a scene there's always uh, you know somewhere further you can push the performers i don't ever have the sense of uh, uh um f- conclusion and you know truly Taking something off my list that I have with producing, with directing, there's always a sort of a further dissatisfaction, and that's great. I mean, that's artist. I think that's art. It's just you never, you're never, finished, never finished, right? So I, I do think there's something healthy about switching from one to the other. But um, where can people get tickets? That's my last question. Oh, tickets are so easy to get. Are they? Many, many ways. Tell um, us. Visit our website at www.heartbeatopera.org. Uh, you can also go to Baruch Performing Arts Center uh, in person and purchase them there during weekdays. May 20th through the 28th. That's right. Uh, you have an opening gala on the 23rd. Yes, and yes. The coll- and Collaborate is on the 24th. Yeah, and then you can see each production for four to five times. Um, the opening gala is going to be great. Um, you can purchase gala tickets and have a champagne toast with the artists in between the two shows. And the ticket will get you into both, both shows in one night. Awesome. Um, so, and it's a, it's a great party uh, that you do not want to miss. And uh, and then you can also see the shows separately if you want um, until May 28th. Be sure, everybody, to follow me on all things social media. And you may find those links and so much more on joelbnew.com. Uh, follow my guest. Um, your handle is at Heartbeat Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, on, it's on Twitter. You're on Instagram. You're on Facebook. All the things. And if you go to their website, all of their links are nice and handy-dandy in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, Subscribe to, rate, review this podcast. Tell your friends all about it. 
um, hashtag five stars for five years. So please go in there and uh, rate accordingly. <laughs> uh, special thanks to uh, to my collaborators over at BroadwayWorld.com. And last but not least, um, Louisa Posca. So nice to meet you. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. That was, was great. That, okay. that was very impressive. <laughs> well, this was such a treat. Cool. I'm so glad I got to meet okay. you. Yeah. Um, you're awesome. Thank um, you. I can't wait to meet Ethan and see your stuff in person. Great, I'm great, great, great. Really, really excited. Really Guys, excited to see you there. Do not miss this Heartbeat Opera um, shows and rep in just a couple of weeks. Uh, from Pearl Studios in New York City, this is Joel B. New. And Louisa Proske. Saying thank you for dropping by <laughs> for something new. On joelbnew.com, you can access the Something New archive by clicking on the podcast tab. There, you'll find every episode ever, featuring conversations and performances with friends and colleagues in the theater industry, including founding artistic director of the Confidential Project series, Marion Abbott. I messaged him and I said, I've had the most crazy idea and I insist that you do it with me. He phoned me 
And literally, I didn't know this. He had phoned me with the intent to say no because he was so busy. But the first thing out of my mouth was, you know how we're too busy to do all the shows that we want to do? <laughs> he went, yes. Um, and that's how it started. Theatrical media.